0: Hi, She Says listeners, Sarah here. I want to thank all of you who were able to make it out or tune into our public conversation event last week. If you missed it or you want to take a second listen, you're in luck. We've put the entire audio for you to listen to right here. The first hour is the panel discussion followed by a question and answer portion from the audience. So stick around. The panel included CMPD Deputy Chief Katrina Grau, Fayetteville Lieutenant John Summerendike, Crystal Emmerich from Brave Step, and myself. The discussion was moderated by Charlotte Talks host Mike Collins. The discussion took place in front of a live audience at the McGlowan Theater in Spirit Square.
1: This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. We're coming to you from Spirit Square's McGlowan Theater for a public conversation beyond She Says Sexual Assault in Charlotte. And an added warning we will be talking about sexual assault, a topic that could be sensitive for some listeners. She Says is, of course, the WFAE produced podcast series that began in May and traces one woman's journey from the moments before her sexual assault through the labyrinth, survivors must navigate in their search for justice. As the series makes strikingly clear, the road is long and winding, sometimes torturous, and justice can often be undefinable and many times unattainable. For those who may not be familiar with the journey the She Says podcast explores, here are a few moments from the series, beginning with the sexual assault survivor we're calling Linda, and including members of the justice system, who WFA reporter and podcast host Sarah D'Elia spoke with in the course of the series.
2: He made a comment and said, this is where I bring everyone, and laughed, and I was just very uncomfortable at this point, (laughs) very uncomfortable, and... That's when he pulled the box cutter out.
1: And then I th- I
2: really felt like he was going to kill me.
3: Lieutenant Peacock's going to talk about some
1: preventative measures that some of our victims didn't take, could have taken, and our community members probably should take.
2: And I pointed from, like, my head to my toes, and I said, does this look like consent to you? I was just shocked. You know, I thought, these people I've, would would be trained on this. The first thing you do is... You believe someone when they tell you this.
3: I, I need to know
2: that you don't feel like I purposely lied about stuff. I need to
0: know that for me, for, you need my, to know
3: that? for my safety. Yeah, I, I would not have said that. I would have tried to use my words again of she was ventilating, and I would have validated it. I would have said, yes, I do believe you. And, and until there's something that would lead me otherwise, I'm always going to believe you. I think that's important for a, a victim to hear that.
2: She said she felt certain that it was him, and I remember my response was very quick, and I said, "I know it's him. I mean, there's just no question there. Period." In the story, if she had
0: not done the Google research and provided that name, I mean, would we
4: be here today? Would he be arrested today? Probably not. It's hard to say. I mean, she, her providing that information was was critical, but unfortunately, it does not give us probable cause to charge him just based on that.
2: Him being prosecuted and found
0: guilty and put away is is one element of justice. But I think ultimately she has a bigger picture than that. And it's justice that women will be heard.
1: This hour we'll hear from law enforcement and from a sexual abuse survivor who now leads an organization supporting people impacted by sexual abuse, but we're going to begin with the woman who has been working on telling not only Linda's story and her quest for justice following sexual assault, but painting a bigger picture of what makes every woman's story different and agonizing in its own way. Sarah Dalia is the reporter and host behind and in front of, she says, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Mike. Nice to have you here. For those people who may not have heard any of these episodes or not all of these episodes or may not be familiar with She Says or where the idea came from, how did it come about?
0: So, Linda contacted WFAE, and specifically our news director, um, sometime last spring, and they started a dialogue just about what our coverage was about sexual assault, and what we were looking into, and what we weren't looking into. And through the course of them talking, she disclosed that she was a sexual assault survivor, and she felt like she didn't have a lot of answers, and that time kept ticking on from the time of her assault to the present day. And so he brought that story to the newsroom with her permission and kind of said, this woman has a story. It sounds really interesting. Who wants to look into it? And I remember at the point, I thought it was really important that a woman contact her, just that that would be a really vulnerable relationship and it would be helpful to be another woman speaking to a woman. Um, So then it got signed to me and I talked to her. And I talked to her for about an hour, an hour and a half the first time on the phone. And I was just really blown away by her story and that she wasn't getting answers, she felt. So she was, you know, taking things into her own hands to kind of investigate her own case.
1: And up to this point, your uh, familiarity with this kind of story was what? Limited?
0: Limited, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I had done some uh, reporting on criminal justice issues and police shootings and and things like that, but as far as working really closely for a subject as long as I ended up working with Linda, uh, I hadn't done that. And, you know, diving into sexual assault and sex crimes was something that was new for me, too.
1: This kind of story strikes me as something that could be potentially incendiary. It's also He Said, She Said, which Mm -hmm. is hence the name of the, the podcast, What was your process? How did you verify and investigate Linda's story? This is a long series of podcasts, long, uh, half hour long uh, programs. That's a lot of tape, a lot of interviews, a lot of copy to write, to be checked. How? What was the process?
0: Well, there was lots of background checks. We did a background check on Linda. We pulled arrest records. We pulled co- court documents. We uh, interviewed people that she knew, and we you know, sort of tried to verify everything that she was saying. It helped that she decided that she was going to start recording her conversations with the police. So when she would say, can you believe that so, so-and-so said this, well, I didn't have to second-guess it because I heard the recordings. So because she was doing her own detective work and we were doing our best to verify everything that she said, um, you know, I felt really confident in it.
1: And that's part of the story, the fact that Linda had to do a lot of her own detective work, at least initially. So for people who have not heard the podcast, you're profiling this one woman. It's her story. Encapsulate her story. What is that story?
0: So Linda was sexually assaulted over three years ago in Charlotte, um, not terribly far from where we are now. And uh, she was sexually assaulted by a stranger. She had been drinking that night and she went for a walk. Um, She was also seeking drugs that night and she found someone who introduced her to the man that she says assaulted her. She got into a car with that man and uh, he took her to a secluded location and assaulted her. And she was able to convince him to let her go and drop her off. Um, and so from there, she had to remember some really important clues from that night. She says that she remembers that he had a patch, like a, a worker's patch on a, on a uniform. He said that She said that he told her how old he was and disclosed a, a nickname. Um, and the company that he worked for was also on his shirt. So from that, she took to Google a couple months later because she felt like she wasn't getting any answers. And from that, she felt like she found the man that assaulted her. So she gave that information to the police and sort of had to wait a while before anything panned out. But that was the kind of detecting work, detective work that she started to do from the day of her assault till now.
1: And it's, it was a long and winding road, and those are your words, I think, from the very first opening moments of the first podcast. When did you begin to view this as a journey?
0: When I sat down, so I was, I had so much tape, and I had spoken to so many people, and I didn't know how to write the first sentence, Because it was overwhelming. I mean, when you have so many opinions and you're trying to be fair to everyone, because I don't think that it's a black and white sort of situation, I think there's a lot of gray. Um, where do you even start? And so I'm an English major and I really like metaphors. Uh, and the winding road was just a metaphor that I could cling to. That after talking to a lot of survivors, they were like, Yeah, it is. You think you're going one way, you're going the wrong way. You think that you have some comfort in the direction you're going and you get there and it's a dead end. So that was the metaphor that I clung to because I thought it would help me, right, and also help people understand the story.
1: And as far, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as we can tell, this is the first time this has been done, that anybody has taken this much of an in-depth look at one person's journey through the system uh, as a result of sexual assault. Is that accurate?
0: I mean, we looked at a lot of other podcasts and a lot of other bodies of work that sometimes we could see similarities, but we didn't find anything quite like what we were doing. Does
1: that surprise you, given the, the frequency with which this happens, that no one else has done this before? and explain the process to people out there?
0: I mean, I think it's one of those things that it's just really complicated and people prefer to put their head down. You know, I mean, I didn't know half of what I know now when I started, because it's really complicated. And so how do you spend time investigating and looking into this system if it doesn't, if you don't think it applies to you? And the thing that I don't think a lot of people realize is that we all know somebody that's been affected by sexual assault, whether it's you, whether it's a family member, it's maybe somebody that's just never disclosed that to you. So you know, we were really trying to get people um, invested in it because this affects everybody.
1: The people who worked on this podcast with you are all women. I'm just well, cari- Greg
0: Collard's a man. Oh,
1: well, yes. <laughs> Last I checked, yes. Uh, but uh, for the three women who worked on this, what was this experience like? What was your reaction as this began to unfold and you began to see? how intricate all this is and how difficult this can be. Uh, not just Linda's story, but other stories.
0: Yeah, I don't know if my perspective, I mean, it's interesting because I thought being a woman would help me get closer to to Linda of like, this is, you know, I'm, I could see myself putting myself in your shoes. I'm empathizing with you. Um, but I don't know how much of me being a woman actually, you know, played a role into it. Uh, I know that, I listened to every phone call that we got from sexual assault survivors, and it impacted me. I mean, I felt those calls, and I'll never forget them. Yeah. Um, but I think that if a man listened to them, hopefully they would have the same reaction. And I've spoken to a lot of men that have listened to the podcast, and we have had male sexual assault survivors, too, call us, and we've played those calls. Um, but they have said, you know... I didn't realize what it was like, and especially those victims that didn't feel like they could come forward for whatever reason. I mean, just hearing their reasoning, it it punches you in the gut, and it it affects you. Uh,
1: This is a long—her journey, at least, was very long. It's not over yet. The podcast may have ended, but she's still fighting through the system with this. Is that because it's sexual assault, or is that— Would that be typical of any crime, if it had been a murder, if it had been, uh, I don't know, a larceny that involved bodily harm? uh, Would the the situation be the same? Would it have taken this long?
0: Well, I'm sure that the law enforcement on the panel will be able to better uh, explain that than me, but I think that sexual assault investigations are very complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think that it has a lot to do, why it takes so long is because of the crime lab. If there's DNA evidence and there's a backlog of that, detectives have really high caseloads. The detectives are backlogged. And
1: there's a backlog of 200 rape kits, and we'll talk about that in the next segment. There are 200 rape kits that are yet to be tested in Mecklenburg County alone. This journey began for Linda in June of 2015. It is now August of 2018. The final episode of the podcast dropped, uh, and that chronicles her first face-to-face meeting with the perpetrator, uh, since the crime, uh, but it's not resolved. So what is the future of this case?
0: Well, that's a really good question. I think Linda would like to know the answer to that, too. I mean, what comes up next for her, her, her case is part of the legal system now, and... Um, And she's waiting for something called a scheduling conference where there's going to be, you know, the prosecution and defense getting together and deciding what is the appropriate course from Mm. there. And I think it's really ironic. It's just a coincidence. But it's really funny that that conference was supposed to happen around the time that the podcast dropped. Then it got pushed back to around this time and now it's pushed off until the fall. So I guess we'll see like what coincidental thing is going on in the fall.
1: We have 30 seconds and I, we talked about this yesterday, you and I, and uh, you didn't blame any one individual or any one thing on the time that it is taken for this to be resolved. What What is an operation here? What is the problem?
0: Well, I think the problem is that we have a culture that allows for people to be sexually assaulted. I think that's probably the problem, and if that stopped, you know, we would probably, everyone up on the stage would be a lot happier. Mm. I think that's an issue, and also just the amount of work on everyone's plate, it slows everything down.
1: Sarah D'Elia is the host and producer of uh, She Says Podcast. We will continue our conversation in a moment. This is a special edition of Charlotte Talks Beyond She Says, Sexual Assault in Charlotte, a public conversation from the McGlowan Theater at Spirit Square. I'm Mike Collins. After every episode of WFAE's She Says podcast, host Sarah Dalia invited listeners who had experienced sexual assault to phone a special number and share their experiences anonymously. Here are a couple of comments we received from women talking about their experiences with law enforcement.
2: When I reported my sexual assault, the police officer that I reported it to surprisingly treated me with such compassion.
5: Unfortunately, the detective was the total opposite. He basically made it seem like, not that he didn't believe
2: me, but that it was an ultimate waste of his time. I was not proud of where I was.
0: put myself in a bad situation, but I was young, and I felt like I didn't deserve what happened to me. But... One of the worst parts was the police
2: treated me
4: basically like I didn't matter because I did put myself in a bad position and that was one of the worst traumas of all.
5: They transferred to 911 and the officer said, You're telling me you were raped by your husband and it was a week ago?
3: Why are you crying? One of the questions that I
1: got immediately was, What were you wearing? And this speaks very clearly to the fact that police officers still need training
6: on how to approach sexual assault victims
1: She Says podcast host Sarah D'Elia is still with us here at McGlone Theater. Sarah spent a year talking to the woman we're calling Linda, the sexual assault survivor who has been brave enough to open her journey through the justice system to Sarah and through Sarah to you. But Sarah also spoke with countless people involved in the investigation of sexual assault crimes and in bringing perpetrators to justice, everyone from nurses who perform the rape exam and create the rape kit to detectives and other law enforcement personnel to those who try and help survivors recover. Physically, emotionally, and mentally. We're going to spend the rest of this hour talking to some of them. Katrina Grau is Deputy Chief for the Investigative Services Group at CMPD, and Lieutenant John Summerendike is Special Victims Unit Commander with the Fayetteville Police Department. Welcome to both of you. Thank you and thank you for driving up here from Fayetteville nice of you to do that Mm -hmm. Crystal Emmerich is a two-time survivor of sexual assault and used those experiences to create an organization to help other women who have been through the ordeal She is founder and executive director of Brave Step welcome back
5: Thank you for having me
1: Deputy uh, when you hear comments like the ones we just heard from those women who volunteered uh, their interactions with police What goes through your mind? What do you think?
4: So, for us as police officers, we, we want to help people. And so when I hear things like that, it, it, it's disturbing because um, being a victim of sexual assault is traumatic, and as police officers, we don't want our experience with the victim to be traumatic.
1: Had you heard those comments before, or was this the first time you became aware of I've feelings? heard them
4: from the podcast. I haven't heard but, but never heard before.
1: Them. Never, never before the podcast.
4: Certainly, um, there have been times before where victims have told us that officers haven't been as compassionate as we as an organization would want them to be.
1: Early in the podcast, Linda, who we spoke to, uh, who uh, Sarah spoke to uh, for a very long time, for the course of the year, uh, made a point of saying that the police, her first encounter with the police officer, a female police officer, was the female police officer saying repeatedly or asking repeatedly, now, are you telling the truth? And admonishing her that if you're not telling the truth, you will be in serious trouble. And she later told Linda that she has to ask those questions and she has to make that statement. Is that true? And if so, why?
4: It it is not our protocol to accuse victims of lying to us. I think um, certainly our responsibility is to thoroughly investigate a case. And what we all have learned over in our training and through our experience is that when a victim experiences trauma, they don't often um, remember things in a linear way that we may want as a police officer. You know, we like to hear, okay, this happened and this happened and this happened. And when you experience trauma, that's not how your brain files memories. And so we often have to ask victims to recount details in an event multiple times to help us capture all that information.
1: So what may appear to be badgering and or unkind is just a way to get at the truth the best way you can?
4: I think sometimes, I mean, we're looking for opportunities to corroborate what the victim told us, to present a case to the district attorney that they can convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that this happened. So when a victim tells us something, we're gonna try to corroborate that. And it may be that the information that she gave us, we go out and try to verify and we don't find. And it's not necessarily that the victim intentionally lied to us, but may, may not remember what happened in a way that she communicated it to us. So there has to be opportunities for us to dialogue with that victim and maybe ask questions and understand that the information they give us the first time may change a little as we work through our investigation.
1: And, Lieutenant Summerendike, you are with the Fayetteville Police, as I said, but you've been a Special Victims Unit Commander for nearly four years with extensive experience in in this area. Is Linda's experience with CMPD or the experiences we heard about from the women in that montage of audio we played at the top of the segment, is that, would those women be saying something similar about your department or about departments elsewhere in North Carolina?
6: Yeah, you know, I'd be really curious to know when... uh they actually filed their rape reports you know I think I'm pretty confident in saying I've read almost every rape case file at the Fayetteville Police Department going back to the mid-80s you know up until the recent past and I think I can probably speak for a lot of law enforcement nationwide we didn't do that great a job with how we treated victims we we didn't understand the concepts of neurobiology of trauma of toxic immobility I didn't know what victim centered meant until we got the sexual assault kid initiative grant just three years ago. I didn't, I didn't understand that concept and I think I probably speak for my entire agency. We didn't understand what victim centered meant. But Do you now
1: think, is that because, would that be the case with every crime or is that the, the case with rape? And would that be the case because police departments are by and large operated by males?
6: No, I, I don't think it's that. I don't know. That's a really a fair statement. Okay. I think, I think with, with rapes in particular, it, it it's a little unusual. It's just, I think, you know, and I I really do want to commend you guys. Your podcast really wasn't about bashing the police. I mean, that's pretty fashionable nowadays. Go ahead and bash the police for everything. It's our fault. Everything's our fault. So I I do commend the direction you kind of took with this. Um, I I think really we need to be held accountable. I mean, I want to be held accountable for everything my detectives, my department does. I think all law enforcement does, but really with rapes in particular, I think, culture in this entire country among the community among citizens that's all of you out there too all of you listening too i think there's so much ingrained victim blaming ingrained rape myths that we're only recently just overcoming i mean we haven't completely overcome anything and all of you you're you're our jury pool Everyone sitting out here everyone listening you're all our jury pool and that affects how we work cases to a certain extent it affects how prosecutors go about prosecuting cases to a certain extent so to answer your question i think Rape in particular, I think that's an unusual crime and that we, we have come a long way, surely, in the last three years. My department has. I know Charlotte Mecklenburg has for several years. But as a country, I think we got a long way to go. So, Crystal,
1: you're a two-time survivor of uh, sexual assault. You've established this uh, organization called Brave Step to help other women uh, go through this process. Would... Uh, it, 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 When you hear these women talk about their experience with law enforcement, this is an embarrassing situation to begin with. It's humiliating. It is uh, toxic in every possible way. Is this part of the problem, the fact that police give off the vibe, perhaps, that they are not on the victim's side?
5: I don't think that it's only centered with uh, the police or legal from the experience that I've seen, just believing in general is so remiss in this country. I can tell you countless stories of parents not believing their kids, of the school systems not believing when sexual assaults are brought to the attention. I think that it's the problem is that we are so busy defending the perpetrators that we don't take the time to believe the victims. And I know that Linda specifically said at one point in her interview, believing me, and and she stopped, but I can finish it. Believing me is everything. That's everything to healing. It's everything to the next step on your journey. And to not be believed is probably one of the worst parts of being a survivor.
1: And that's a theme that runs through the Me Too movement as well. Uh, Has the Me Too movement changed anything? Has it... In, in, this, in cases of rape and, and, and in dealing with the uh, survivors of rape, has it changed the way police view the, the victim and in the way they handle the case? Or do you tend to believe them first and then investigate second?
4: I would say at the charlotte mecklenburg Police Department, that's our policy. Um, like I said, we're, we're going to hear what the victim said, and then we're going to go out and try to find things to corroborate what she told us. Um, I think the last thing we would ever want is a victim to come forward and say things about us as a as an individual or a police officer that we heard those victims say. And fortunately for me, I had an experience recently. Um, I was an investigator in our rape unit from 1993 to 1997, and um, I had a victim come forward recently that I handled her case in 1995. And just told me that despite a very traumatic experience for her, that it, it's positive because of the interaction she had with us and with me individually. And so I think that's what we would all want. It's, um, we, I think we would all agree on this panel that um, as Sarah said, we don't want victims to be sexually assaulted. And short of stopping a perpetrator, there has to be other things we can do collectively as a, as a police department, as mm-hmm. advocates, as media, to try to help victims not be victimized.
1: I want to hear from both of the police officers about this, because when we spoke yesterday, when I spoke with Sarah yesterday about this, I made a point of saying in the last segment that she saw a lot of problems and a lot of, of difficulty for Linda, at least, to get through the system, but she doesn't put the blame for those problems on any individuals. So where do you think the logjam lies? And I know that you, uh, Lieutenant, have done a lot of work with uh, expediting and and fixing problems in how Fayetteville handles this, but where do you think the problems lie?
4: So, um, you know, DNA has evolved over time, and we as an organization look at best practices and try to evolve with those. So um, I'm not going to say anything that um, as we've indicated, this case is still moving through the criminal justice system, and as much as I would like to maybe give specifics, I won't because I don't want to jeopardize her well, not ability. Not the problems to
1: just with Linda, but just the sure. problems in the system itself.
4: No, I want to say that um, in in 2016, we were fortunate to get two grants that helped us purchase equipment in our crime lab that has significantly reduced the amount of time that a rape kit would stay in the lab, mm-hmm. and so um, you know significantly right now that you indicated earlier that we had over 200 kits that needed to be tested currently we have 121 kits okay. and the average amount of time for a kit to be tested in our lab is 39 days
1: how many rapes per month in charlotte mecklenburg
4: we have about we've averaged for the last five years about 280 a year so 23 and a half a month
1: so if we have 121 something rape kits left to be tested that's half the year's worth why does it take so long
4: we have, um, you know, other, DNA involves other um, things than just sexual assault. So we have, you know, homicide cases, robbery, burglary, larceny from auto that are tested in our lab. So we have six analysts. We have three analysts that are solely dedicated to sexual assault. So it, it's,
1: it's a resources problem.
4: It, it is somewhat of a resource problem. You, you have equipment. Um, you, you, there's time for that equipment to run the test. We can't do that any quicker. Right. Um,
1: you had a completely different situation in Fayetteville when you came into the, the, your present uh, job, Lieutenant. You uh, had discovered that police officers were discarding rape kits. Why?
6: Yeah. So uh, you know, I started first. Let me let me preface it. 121 rape kit backlog in the scheme of things. That that's minuscule for a department that size. If go ahead go online read the attorney general's report on the statewide inventory there's much smaller departments that have close to a 1000 rape kit mm-hmm. backlog so charlotte's done a phenomenal job with their backlog we have a we have a greater backlog than charlotte and we're probably one-third their size So Thank you. Th- they've done a phenomenal <laughs> job with their backlog they, they do need some credit with that but anyway okay. going back to to our problems um yeah uh, so yeah a few years ago, I started researching old sexual assault reports just uh, to, to see if there was a need to form a cold case unit. Uh, I did find several reports right offhand, uh, several case files. I felt that were very solvable. Um, the issues where we did not have the evidence on hand. So, uh, you know, I found that we were disposing of evidence. Our, our chief at the time, Chief Medlock, ordered a complete audit of all of our sexual assault kits. So, a, a hand count was done of every single one we had on hand, which at the time. Was uh 962, I think, um, thereabouts, that that we had in our evidence room, and it was discovered though that over 300 had been destroyed over the years. And really, the bottom line was, is just to free up space in the evidence room is a very poor practice, you know, very, very bad practice. Um, we probably could have put a lot more people in jail if we still had them, but. Um, But that's what it revealed. And these
1: rape kits are are critical, I would think, to helping solve the crime. Uh, Sarah, you you, uh, uh, also report that not all hospitals have access to rape kits and not all victims get access to a rape kit. How can that be?
0: Well, uh, yeah, it's a really great question, and we were inspired by our listeners. We had a few listeners that called in and said, we had a listener from Seattle who said that she was raped, and when she went after her assault, uh, the the hospital that had an emergency department did not have kits. And so she had to go to another hospital, but by then, several hours had passed, and ultimately... She says that the DA decided not to prosecute because there had been an issue with the amount of time that had passed and when she was actually able to get an ex- exam. Mm-hmm. And then we had another listener from Tennessee who wrote and called us too, and she said that she knew she couldn't handle an almost hour long drive to the nearest hospital that had an exam. So it's a resources issue for sure. And uh, my colleague Alex Olgan uh, took on calling 121 hospitals, licensed hospitals in the state of North Carolina, to see where we are. Um, We're pretty lucky, uh, especially being in Charlotte. Uh, In a big city, you have more resources, but it's an issue in the rural communities in the state and around the country uh, that don't have the access to sane nurses, the sexual assault nurse examiners, let alone uh, sexual assault kits or a nearby crime lab that they can get sent to.
1: And time is of the essence. Absolutely. Uh, You point out, Crystal, that Uh, not everybody chooses to go through a uh, rape kit exam because it is your body becomes your body is a crime scene and it's treated like a crime scene. What would you tell women who face the face that ordeal? Would you say do it no matter what?
5: It is so hard, Mike, because at the state the mental state in which you're in, the mental and emotional, and and setting the physical aside, because the physical really is the least of your worries at the end of the day. Um, It is so hard to think clearly, and it's hard to know what your steps are. There's no manuals. You know, I'm raped. Here's the first thing I do. There's there's no existing guidelines. Um, I haven't actually Googled that, but that's probably worth Googling. (laughs) But uh, nonetheless, I think I do believe even though it is, a, is another level of trauma to go through this, it is important to, di- to get the rape kit if they're available because it does help us slowly but surely put these people behind bars, and I think that sl- stops the cycle.
1: One of the other things that you say is that this system isn't really built for victims. I want to find out why you say that when we come back. That's Crystal Emmerich, founder and executive director of Brave Step. We're also here with a member of CMPD, the Fayetteville Police Department, and Sarah D'Elia, the host of She Says. I'm <laughs> to <laughs> It's a special edition of Charlotte Talks, Beyond She Says, Sexual Assault in Charlotte, a public conversation from the McGloan Theater at Spirit Square as a follow-up to the She Says podcast a 10-episode podcast, the most extensive thing you've probably ever heard on sexual assault. And following each of those 10 episodes, host Sarah D'Elia, who's with me on the dais here today, uh, invited people who had experienced sexual assault to anonymously share their experiences. One of the requests Sarah made to listeners was to describe their experience beyond the assault. She wanted to know if these women had filed a police report and the reasoning and emotions that surrounded that decision.
0: I was assaulted when I was active duty in the military. I did not file a police report because, as he said, no one's going to believe you anyway. I didn't report anything because I was in denial for a long time. Ago. And even though I recognize now what he did was
6: assault, I still have doubts that enforcement and the justice system would have even believed me. I was sexually assaulted in my living room. I did not file a
4: police report because, at the time at least, it was all very confusing. and. I convinced myself that he thought he had consent, even though I was crying and saying no. And it took me a long time to come to terms with the idea that, you know, that had been a sexual assault. I ended up filing a police report because the, actually the police officer encouraged me to do that. I wasn't going to, so she actually encouraged me to
2: file a police report. I did not file a police report because we had both been drinking that night. And even though I was the one blacking out and he was on top of me, I still felt responsible for what happened.
5: I did not file a police report at the time I was young, and I wanted to pretend that it never happened because I felt so humiliated. I also didn't want my family to know because I felt like they would see me
4: differently or blame me for what happened.
1: Crystal Emmerich is here from uh brave step and you have said crystal that the system isn't really built for victims and that it is so complex with so many layers that it can do damage mm-hmm. to the individual how so and does that begin with the rape kit does it begin where does it begin where does that damage begin
5: i think there's it's twofold one there's the the damage that the perpetrator does and the mind games that come with being abused in several of those recordings you just heard the shame the guilt Um, the sense of of loss of control. Um, But I also do believe that the system, the way our forefathers designed it, it was guilty until proven innocent. So it's on the survivor to advocate, as Linda and Emily did in all of the podcasts, so strongly to get good quality help. And that is of no, like pointing fingers at no one at this stage. It's just the system isn't designed to make going through advocating and getting a conviction for perpetrators easy.
1: We do have this system in America where the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator of a crime is innocent until proven guilty. And I think there are probably very few people in this room who would advocate changing that. But how do you make it easier, fairer, more navigable, particularly in cases like this, for the person upon whom the crime was allegedly perpetrated? How do you do it?
4: Mike, can I just, um, I think part of what we wanna do here is help educate people, especially victims who may be reluctant to come forward. And um, one opportunity that exists that we haven't talked about is a, a victim can go to a hospital and have a sexual assault kit completed and do that anonymously. And law enforcement will collect that kit and store it. And we don't know who the victim is and the victim may decide later that she's ready to come forward and report that to police, and then we still have that evidence. And so there is an opportunity for victims of sexual assault to have a sexual assault kit done and not report that to the police, but still allow us to collect evidence or the sexual assault nurse examiner to collect evidence that we could use if down the road the victim decided that she was ready to come forward and talk to us about what happened.
1: Great information, but I don't think that answered the question. Uh, How how do you make it fairer or more easily workable for victims of these crimes? If we have to, and we do have to, presume that the person being accused is innocent until they go to court.
4: So I think what you know, Le- Lieutenant Summer and Dyke mentioned was you know victim-centered, and so it's our expectation as an organization of our police officers who respond to a victim who re- is reporting a sexual assault or the detective who is responsible for following up to do that in a way that Shows empathy and compassion, and as I said, you know, it's we, we have to be thorough, but we have to be objective. And so, you know, to give victims an opportunity to catch their breath or cry or whatever that is, um, you you have to show that compassion to victims and to to allow them to be able to tell their story.
1: And it's not just police; uh, it's the system itself. Because you talked, Lieutenant, about victim blaming a few minutes ago. And in the podcast, we hear little, we get little glimpses of, of Linda's case and, and from listeners who've shared similar experiences about them feeling like they have to prove that they are telling the truth and that they have to prove that they're not guilty of doing anything. And it wasn't because what they were wearing or the situation that they were in or that the place that they were in. They, they are always feeling they have to justify themselves as opposed to saying, somebody raped me, go after them. So and you also say lieutenant that when prosecutors put together juries they're always thinking about the jurors not believing the victim. What's that all about? Why do jurors tend to believe not believe the victim?
6: Well it goes back to what I said earlier every this is our jury pool out here society is our jury pool and I honestly wholeheartedly believe that there's still a large degree of victim blaming there's a large de- degree of 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 rape myths that exist that are ingrained in everybody i mean Mm -hmm. i consider myself the biggest advocate for survivors of rape in my department i'll call somebody out in a heartbeat but i catch myself i catch myself reading reports and going hmm and then i have to say whoa hit the brakes we'll back up a little bit back up a little bit just remember your training remember this rape victim there, there may be reasons that she's not making sense in this report i have to catch myself from engaging in victim blaming and Buying into rape myths, so all it takes for a defense lawyer is to get one one juror, one juror to buy into to his victim blaming you know, spew, you know, his victim blaming rhetoric that he's spewing up there, and and the case is gone. So that that's the biggest challenge I think we face going forward in in the justice system. Does that
1: happen in in other kinds of cases, or is it just cases of rape?
6: Uh, I think more so in rape than anything else. I mean, um, you know, I've investigated major crimes, you know, homicides, robberies, uh, you know, kidnappings, ag assaults and, and whatnot. But rape is rape is rape is definitely the hardest one by a long shot. When, you know, when I hear juries saying they want character reference, they, they found it, they found her not found them not guilty because they want they want a character reference for the victim. Why was the victim out there driving around at two in the morning? You know, why was she walking around at two in the morning? You know, she has a marijuana arrest. You know, five years before the rape happened, she must be a bad person. That means she's raped. You want know, to hear idiot statements like that coming out of jurors' mouths? That's why we're losing cases. Then yeah, we we got an issue. Society has an issue. It's not just law enforcement. It's society as a whole, mm-hmm. Sarah.
0: So there are a couple of points I wanted to make. Um, one, when you asked that question about um, you know, is this a sexual assault? investigation problem. It does this happen with other crimes? And something that comes to my mind is uh, a special uh, retired detective that we we spoke to from Florida. Uh, his name is Terry Thomas. He uh, was an amazing resource for the podcast and really let us pick his brain. But one of the things that he said that really stayed with me was, you don't ask somebody, why'd you leave your garage door open if your car gets broken into? You take the report." but why is there so much questioning of the victim? And this was kind of his perspective, and, and that kind of goes back to the training that he really feels that needs to be instilled in detectives. Um, another thing that I, I think about is that is all the interesting conversations I've had with people about this podcast and how uh, I've talked to a lot of spe- more men than women about this, of just how they had a really hard time connecting with Linda at first because they just kept thinking, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And so my question back to them was, well, why do you think that? You know? And then it started this interesting dialogue and this interesting kind of like internal uh, dialogue with themselves about the own ju- their own judgments that they have.
1: Well, we should mention, for those who have not heard the podcast, that Linda's very open and honest with you at the beginning in the first couple of episodes about what led to the incident of right. the sexual assault. She had had a fight with her husband. She had taken a walk. Uh, into an area that she knew she probably wouldn't shouldn't have done because it was kind of sketchy. Somebody asks if they can help her. Uh, she uh, mentions drugs. He takes her to somebody who can fulfill that request, and it is that individual who commits the assault, and she knows that she shouldn't be there, but she's there anyway. And that is that part of the problem? This is probably not an isolated incident. This probably ha- has happened before, something similar to this. Does that make it more difficult for police to separate what got the person there from the actual physical act of from the crime
4: so i think it goes without saying that um it shouldn't matter what any victim does they don't deserve to be sexually assaulted right so but certainly it it may create challenges for us in an investigation because as lieutenant summerundike said people are judgmental and so our goal is to provide as much evidence as we can to corroborate what the victim told us to present A good case for the prosecution for the district attorney's office to move forward so certainly it can create challenges in our investigation but ones that we have to try to work through
1: Linda's incident took place in 2015 I think it was June of 2015 you began talking to her in 2017 the last uh, podcast in the series became available 2018 August of 2018 and evidently the progress of investigating this case was glacial, uh, if that's a fair word to use, until the podcast began to air. And then suddenly the tempo began to pick up.
0: Well, I would say it was more when we, you know, kind of, there were certain things that were, the detective was doing. I want to be fair to that detective that they were doing and were working. But it was, there was a, a key moment where there was some evidence that they were going to collect and they were, It looked like they were dragging their feet on it. And we did let CMPD know ahead of time that we had this sensitive audio, that we wanted to talk about it. We wanted it to always be an open conversation. And I said, you know, I don't think it's black and white, but we need to have a conversation because you guys are part of it. And then after we let them know from the beginning that we had this tape, it was the next week that they did go and finally do something that they had been waiting to do. Did the
1: podcast... pick up the pace, cause you to pick up the pace, or was it simply the progress of the case through any process that you'd have to go through, and it just happened to coincide with the podcast?
4: So, again, I I don't want to say anything that would compromise this case, but um, I think even in the podcast, Sarah pointed out that there was... efforts in the criminal justice system that are well documented in the criminal justice system where we were trying to get evidence to identify a perpetrator in early 2017 before we were even aware that a podcast existed.
1: Okay. Uh, And I want to point out that we, I believe, I'm speaking for Sarah here, that we, we were in touch with CMPD throughout this whole thing and, and, and playing tape and, and corroborating store the story, and our intent was never to go get you, to get the police department. It was always just to investigate the story and the process and to illuminate the process. But you have listened to all of the episodes of this podcast, you and your colleagues at CMPD. What has resulted from you listening and learning from what this one woman went through?
4: So as I'm sure you all heard, um, I said, and I'm not, I'll say it again tonight, I think there were things we could have done better. And I have spoken to the victim and told her that. As a matter of fact, you met
1: with her last night and apologized.
4: Right. I I felt like that I was going to be on this panel And that while I wasn't gonna talk about her case specifically, I was gonna talk about challenges that she felt like she experienced in her investigation. And it just felt insincere to me to do that without her knowing who I was and without me knowing who she was. And so I called and asked if I could meet with her and it took us a little bit of time to coordinate our schedules, but I did spend about two and a half hours with her last night. I think it's important for us as an organization to know how she felt and things that we can do to make all victims of sexual assault feel better but, um, So some of the things that um as i said one of the things that is a significant challenge was a significant challenge for us was the delay in a rape kit being tested and due to the equipment that we have um, and some dedicating some additional resources to that it is much quicker i'm sure for a victim it's still a very traumatic experience to wait for a police detective to call and say okay we have results in your case but we have significantly reduced the amount of time that a victim is waiting for lab results and as i said um, most recently we evaluated the amount of time that it takes from january of 2016 to present the kits that we have in the lab and on average it's 39 days and i think that
0: is great. And I think that it is wonderful that CMPD did go and have a really candid conversation with Linda. I think it is worth pointing out, though, that her assault happened over three years ago, and it took quite a bit of time for CMPD to reach out to her and to have that difficult conversation that I know meant a lot to her. But it's been over three years, and there is a very public forum going on and a very public podcast that's you know, shedding some light to this. So I appreciate the difficult spot that CMPD is in, but man, I feel like it has to be acknowledged that the timing of the meeting with Linda, I mean... It, it has been over three years since her assault, you know, and, and just to acknowledge that there were some things that, that Linda did herself and the work that she had to do as a, as a survivor, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize is just the amount of work, whether it's something like with Emily's case that we, we you know, the emotional work that Emily had to take on or the actual investigative case so that we have, Linda took.
1: We have 30 seconds left, Sarah, so let me turn it around and ask you your purpose was to follow this one woman through her journey and to make people understand what these victims go through. Right. When you find out how difficult it has been for her and how long and arduous and frustrating and agonizing it has been, do you think that listening to this podcast may cause people who have experienced this not to want to go through the system?
0: I think Linda's story gives people hope. I mean, she put in the work and she got results. Um, She's a fighter, and she uh, is seeing the rewards of that fight. I don't think this will discourage anyone.
1: I want to thank Sarah Dalia, uh, Katrina uh, Grau from CMPD, John Summer and Dyke from Fayetteville PD, and Crystal Emmerich from Brave Step for being with us. A reminder, our podcast is available at NPR One and wherever you get podcasts. If you're a victim of sexual assault and are looking for help, we have several resources listed on our website at wfae.org slash Charlotte Talks. <clears throat>
0: The public conversation portion of the event started with a comment from Mecklenburg County District Attorney Spencer Merriweather.
1: Well, we're going to start right here in the front with District Attorney Spencer Merriweather. He's here and we, we have talked a lot about police and law enforcement and their role in all this. And as District Attorney, you have made prosecuting sexual assault cases a top priority. So how do you think the justice system is serving victims. And I have to ask, because I didn't get to this in the program, we ran out of time, is justice? Is there justice for these people? Are they getting justice?
7: There is justice. Uh, It's hard fought. I think Sarah made the the point that it takes fighters. We certainly hope that the survivor isn't the person who has to do all of the fighting by herself, but it does take fighters within the system to get that justice. Um, But we do do believe um, that justice can be served. Well, and a lot of you may be new to this uh this well, at least the prosecution of sexual assault within the justice system and what 's important to know about it is the people that have dedicated their lives to to doing this work it 's mission work um, it 's mission based work um, These people are champions um we all have to or have been trying to work harder to try to train ourselves at getting better at this um there's a there's three numbers that no one even mentioned today, was Rule 412. used to be you could ask every question under the sun about someone's sexual history. Um, Now you can't do that. Um, The system has gotten better um, because someone decided to stand up and actually fight for victims. It used to be we didn't ask questions about, or we asked questions and expected these linear stories as uh, Chief Grow actually talked about. And we know now that we can't expect that. We've had to get better about the way that we uh, interact with survivors. What I also have to say is that while this is mission-based work, um, as you indicated, we're still doing this within the framework of a constitutional system, one that says that we have to figure out a balance between fighting hard for someone who's gone through something terribly traumatic and at the same time trying to preserve the rights of the accused. One of the things that never gets mentioned about sexual assault is that there is a right uh, to confrontation, right, to confront your accuser in our Constitution. And while that's a constitutional premise that we all accept and believe in, do you know how horrible that is for someone who's actually gone through a sexual assault to have to walk in a courtroom and actually face the person that did it to them? So someone who's tried these cases for three years, that's the first discussion I have with uh, a survivor is that this is part of the deal Um, and if usually if a person is willing to go through and accept that idea and that notion then you can go to that next step but none of this is easy Um, we'd be lying if we said that uh, just like that we can make this an easy process for a survivor because we can't this whole thing is a tragedy we just have to make it a little a little easier for people and there are people on the stage are And, to and
1: what I'm hearing you say is, you you are making inroads into doing just that.
7: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, Alex. Up,
2: oh. yeah. <laughs> My name's <is> also Alex. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, great name. A fortuitous. Yeah, great, awesome. <laughs> um, I'm born and bred in Charlotte, and uh, I just wanted to say that words are very powerful, and that one way that CMPD can actively show empathy for people that have been through this kind of trauma is to refer to them as survivors, not victims.
1: And we have uh, somebody filled out a comment card before we started. Uh, Is Linda's story common with CMPD, or is it an aberration?
4: Well, I hope that it's not. I mean, it's certainly 281 times a year we have victims that report sexual assault, and I'm sure there's more than that that don't report. But my experience with our detectives um, is that This is a little unusual and we don't have victims who feel like they weren't heard or treated in a compassionate way.
1: Does it take from 2015 to 2018? Will will a rape that happens tonight? Like I said, April 2016,
4: it wouldn't be uncommon for it to take 17, 18, 19, 20 months for a case for a rape kit to work its way through the lab. Okay. Um, Since 2016, that's not the case.
1: And the only way to speed that up is more money, more people?
4: More equipment, resources.
1: Okay.
5: Mike, I'd like to add to your original question, though, is is Linda's story unusual? A lot of the women that we see have never reported. Uh, For them, justice was trying to find a way out of that dark space that can control you, it can ruin you, or you can fake your way through it, but you're still lost in the dark of it. And so for us, justice is simply trying to find a place where it doesn't control you and you can move through it in a, in a healthy and healing manner. But I, I think, I tend to believe that, you know, 60% of survivors never report that Linda's story, uh, it's not as common, uh, but I think that there's certainly room for more Lindas to be able to come forward and advocate because of her courage and conviction.
1: And, Lieutenant, you've said that uh, you don't believe the criminal justice system is serving sexual assault victims. Uh, you're reluctant to point fingers at, as to why, but w- w- society, you say, needs to shoulder some of the blame. Is that just getting back to victim blaming, or is there more to it than that?
6: No, i think I think I pretty much answered that okay. question. I mean, our, our jury, which I, I think, Mr. Prosecutor, you, you, I think anything you do is geared towards convincing a jury of 12, all 12 of them, not just 11, all 12 of them. It, That's so ingrained that the victim blaming, again, I'm sorry, I'm a broken record, the victim blaming and the rape myths are so ingrained in in everybody in this room and everybody in society, which is our jury pool, that it it makes those cases complicated. We're we're not getting justice for victims.
0: The one thing that I would say in regards to that question about is Linda's story common, um, I think about what Linda said to me the first day that I met her, which was about the questioning that she felt like she was asked, Mm -hmm. like, Uh, if you're lying, you could be arrested, something about false allegations. And if you listen to this week's podcast, podcast, we play um, a portion of a a conversation she had with Detective Kogel, who worked her case. And Detective Kogel, when she's confronted by Linda, asking, you know, this really hangs over my head of, of feeling like I wasn't believed from day one, Detective Kogel's response, which I believe was very sincere, but it was, well, that's what I say to everyone. And to me... That's the problem. That's, if that's how you're starting, you know, and, and and I can't speak for every detective at Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. And I know that there are victims that and survivors that have gotten in touch with us that had good experiences with CMPD. But if that is how you're starting those really important conversations, Harold Midlock talked a lot about the R word, relationships, and how that's a, a complicated word for police sometimes. If you're starting a relationship off on that foot of of not necessarily believing someone or making that person feel like they're not believed that's a problem. And Detective Kogel's response to that in in this podcast, I hope people will listen to. I mean, it made it sound like that was something she did very frequently.
1: Is that policy?
4: I think in no, absolutely it's not policy, but I think in in fairness um what Detective Kugel also said was um I work every case you know, whether I believe the victim or not, I work every case based on the evidence that I have and that it really didn't matter to the detective if she believed the victim or not. She was going to work really hard to try to determine what happened in the case. No, it's not our policy to tell victims that we don't believe them or tell them that they could be arrested if they don't tell us the truth. What we do want to tell victims is, like I I described earlier, that they've experienced trauma and they may not tell us things in a linear way and that it's really, really important that they be completely honest with us. I think sometimes, um, we heard that for people, it's, it's, they, they want to blame themselves. Should I have, I shouldn't have, why did I do? And, and we want them to be able to tell us those things so that it makes the case more prosecutable and, so we want them to be honest and I don't think it's uncommon for us to say you can tell us whatever, you know, it doesn't matter whether you were using drugs or whatever. We want to know that so that we can help work through this case with you.
1: Okay. Over here.
6: Mike, good evening. My name is Kevin. I live here in Charlotte. It seems to me like, and as a man, we tend to be more solution oriented, uh, going right for the solution. This rape kick thing just keeps coming up and coming up. And I've been hearing about this for years. The questions that come to my mind are, is this, is this a pharmaceutical company that's making these things, or is it a mom-and-pop company out in Dubuque, Iowa? Why isn't it being marketed? Why isn't every damn hospital have these things, just like they have gurneys on the floor, why don't they have these rape kits in, the, in every single hospital?
1: Uh, you go into great detail in one of the episodes about exactly what is a great a, a rape kit? What's in it, mm-hmm. and how it is dealt with by the the specially trained nurses who administer the examination using the rape kit? Talk about that.
0: Well, they're I mean they are expensive, and uh, part of that is the why they're a cardboard well, box uh, the
1: size of a, sho- a shoe right. box. Oh, you so. that I sounds listened.
0: really familiar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I understand the, there's a, from my understanding from our reporting is that it's expensive to actually, the, the testing, okay. having the technicians that are qualified to do the testing. I mean, you know, you, just anyone can't test it. I, I think, I think the question, is. I, I understand the uh, the, your comment. I think the question is, what can we do to better help the police fix the backlog problem? Because it is a resource thing. So it is, you know, and this is something like, as a reporter, I'm curious, like, what, who needs to write the check for the crime la- or, or, you know, like, wh- what do citizens that want to get involved, like, what, I- what is the solution there? I feel like that's something that I wish we would have been able to dive into more is how do we end the backlog? Do you have any insights to I mean, either it, one of it, you guys? About... It's,
6: um, my understanding is being worked on now with our state legislature. I mean, you, I mentioned the uh, previous inventory law that came out that required all law enforcement agencies to inventory their sexual assault kits. Now, my understanding is somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. They're actually working on getting funding to get both a tracking system right. for all rape kits and the funding to, to reduce our backlog and to reduce all future backlog. But but all- getting
1: back to the to the uh, audience member's question over here. I mean, are, are they you described them in your podcast as being something the size of a shoebox and in that shoebox are envelopes that are sealed and that with explicit instructions on what you should do and swabs and and, and th- how to use the swabs and where to put them and how to seal them and, so that they are then incontrovertibly evidence mm-hmm. and not tampered with. It doesn't seem to be that the kit is expensive. It's the process of analyzing the kit that's expensive. So why would not every hospital have on available at any given time thirty kits? Right. I think that's a question for those hospitals too. Okay. I
0: mean, to be fair, I don't think I think that that's a that's a great question. I think it's a question for them. Um, the kits right aren't the most expensive part of that. It's the time. Um, And it's also having people that are qualified. I mean, you don't have to have a SANE nurse. That's kind of like the golden standard to have a SANE nurse uh, that's gone through that additional training to do the uh, um, exam. But you can have an ER doctor. You can have other nurses that because, I mean, they're detailed. Those instructions are detailed for a reason. And it's not for those SANE nurses that have been through that additional training. It's for those people that don't do it every day and need to know from uh, square one, what do they do? Um, so I would say that question is a question for the hospitals and the healthcare system.
1: Okay, go ahead. Hi, this is Kelly from Charlotte.
4: So we know that overall Department of Justice shows that crime is overall down in this country, but sexual violence remains high. There are about a half a million women in Charlotte. One-fifth of them will be survivors of sexual assault. That's about 100,000. 30% will report it. That's about 30,000. I want to know how many rape detectives are currently with CMPD. Is it adequate? I know that's a difficult question to ask you. Why don't we have more lab technicians, dedicated DNA, machinery and and resources like we talked about? And if you don't, what can we do as taxpayers to make sure that you do? Because this is a crime that affects all of us. So we have six sexual assault detectives that work in um, the sexual assault unit that receive um, active cases. And then we have one detective that works cold cases along with um, a supervisor and a couple of people that are part-time. So we also, um, as Lieutenant Summer and Dyke mentioned, have a cold case unit. Um, Certainly there is a process that we're going through now as an organization. There is no um, standard in this country that says if you have... um, an investigative services group how many detectives you need for a particular crime. So it's a little different in patrol. We have a formula that can say this is about how many patrol officers you need to police a community our size. There is no standard in our country on the number of detectives that you need to investigate cases. Um, And so as an organization, we are trying to develop that standard. And so currently, um, we have a records management system that that we use to track our cases, and it basically says whether the case is open or whether the case is closed. But there, there there's certainly statuses between that. So if a case is open, well, I may have made an arrest, and I'm waiting on um, Mr. Merriweather to prosecute that case, and that case may not be actively worked because there's not a lot of active things I need to do, but when that case is coming to trial, there may be things that the district attorney's office asks us to do, And so we're working that case again with the cases that are being currently assigned. So we're trying to develop a national model that says this is how many detectives that you need to work sexual assault cases in a particular community or organization.
1: If you had enough detectives and you had enough money for the lab work to be done in an appropriate amount of time, given the state of DNA today and what what we can do with DNA, would you solve more of these assaults?
6: yeah Heck yeah man <laughs> i mean yeah just just think about it i mean i i think you had a great um a great comment i think the uh retired homicide detective who's a sheriff now i think mm-hmm. he, he some he hit it on a nail he said you know for every 10 cases you have you're helping out on 40 others so that's 40 more reports you got to do this possibly 40 more times you got to testify in court i mean you may, you're on, you're on vacation you're on sick leave you got a sick kid and all that but uh yeah, if, if if you had, and we've recently experienced that, we've recently had the luxury of having Perf come in and, and kind of revitalize, you know, re- revisit and revitalize our, our unit and give us some good suggestions. So our chief at the time, he doubled the size of our unit, and I can immediately see instead of, you know, sifting through cases, and they, they have cases that are open for five, six, eight months, now we're, we're trying to get them, you know, maybe within three months, not including lab work time, of course. So, yeah, I've seen a significant increase in the time we can actually spend on cases, which equals to, you know, we're going to put more bad guys in jail. Yeah.
1: But 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 is DNA testing, is that the magic bullet or is that just television?
6: No, because, you know, you're not going to get DNA on all of it. Sometimes it's just an old school rape case. You know, it's just, uh, as you said, he said, she said, and you do your darndest to make it a he said, they said case and, you know, get, get a brief chance of the prosecution. Okay.
2: I'm a sexual assault victim and I was sexually assaulted in 2015 as well Um, two of my questions are I was never contacted by my detective who only contacted me um, once after our initial meeting about my rape kit even ever being analyzed I don't even know if it still exists Um, and secondly I did not even get help or really answers from the police department until I was able to have funds for a lawyer in 2018. And once we pulled the police reports and showed, you know, my words versus what was taken down, because um, the person who did the report um, can analyze and write things in their own words. um, They distorted my story based off of their own perception of how I was answering things because they took it, right after my rape kit was done in the hospital. Was that here? Yes.
1: What role does the officer's perception play in how the case proceeds?
4: Well, I think, you know, sometimes, um, you know, based on your personal experience, you may, you may have an opinion, but what we train our officers is not to put your opinion in a report. You, you, just the facts, ma'am. Um, that you try to get that information so that then a detective can follow up on it and if, if you're willing um, there's someone in the audience here that works for CMPD that I would be glad to follow up with you and, and find out what happened with your case Is our expectation as an organization when a victim reports a violent crime which sexual assault is that we follow up with that victim within 24 hours and so if that's not what happened that's not our expectation so I can certainly have somebody follow up with you today
3: Hi, my name is Brene Forrest. I was also sexually assaulted in 2015. Actually, in June 2015. Mm -hmm. I would like to ask a question to the district attorney as well as the police officers. So long story short, um, like I said, I was sexually assaulted, and apparently there is a law that only in North Carolina you are legally allowed to rape somebody until their consent. What happens is the guy can insert into a vaginal area, and it's not considered rape until they take it out and put it back in. And I had to hear that from a victim's advocate, and then I had to explain that to a detective because they didn't know that law exists. So how do we, or how does North Carolina help eradicate that law?
6: First of all, is that true? Yeah, are you talking about withdrawn consent, I believe? Yes. Okay, so yeah. Please let me answer this. Yeah, so yeah. we're kind of dealing with this. We had a case like that in Fayetteville recently. It, what it stems from is an idiotic case law from the 1970s that's still on the books. So if you want to effect change on that, get with your local legislatures and let's get it off the books for one. Um, two, two, I know we, we've already been in discussion with our police attorney on that. And sir, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> that there, there are, I think... As long as you have a scenario that's not the same as the case law scenario, you can try to proceed forward and get new case law created. So we're kind of in the works of trying to do that. But it all stems on our district attorney willing to go forward with that. So we're we're trying to identify a, a potential case to create new case law with regard to withdrawn consent because it, it's ridiculous. It needs to end, and and we'll we'll try to get it done here. But 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 all of you play a part in that too, so thank you. Spencer Murray, whether you want to
1: comment gonna, on that. You got
7: it exactly right. Uh, the only thing I would add is that f- – Functionally, um, the the case is called State v. Way. Um, Functionally, if we all are doing our jobs correctly and we're asking the right questions, that case usually will not be applicable. Um, Without getting into uh, too many details, the the withdrawn consent, if you are really getting a full capture of exactly what it is that happened, doesn't necessarily end up really applying that much. Still, if it, ha- if it applies once, it's once too many. Um, quite frankly, that's legislation that I support as well. Um, I do know that it has been, been pending through the last couple of sessions of our legislature and hope that it uh, passes summarily.
1: Thanks. Okay, up in the back.
7: Hello, my name is uh, Mark Fraser with Positive One, and I know the emphasis tonight is on sort of solving the crimes after these things happen, which is a reactive approach. At what point are we going to begin to be more proactive and start really tum- coming up with trainings and investing our resources in preventing the perpetrators from committing the crime in the first place? Because the survivor still has to live with it, even knowing the perpetrator is in jail. So are there efforts, in, and you know maybe, Crystal, you could speak to this with all the work that you've done, and even the police officers, are there more efforts to invest resources in prevention, and really wrap our arms around men who typically commit these crimes more often and really get them to stop these acts that they're committing. Yeah,
6: yeah how about this? I'm, I'm gonna throw it back on you, sir, and, and everybody in the audience. Why don't we, how about this for a novel concept? Why don't we teach the young men in our life, our sons, our cousins, our nephews, not to rape women, not to beat on women. Let, let's be role models for the young men in our lives. From an early age, I mean, once they get to the point where they're raping women, it's too late. I mean, the the, the prison system ain't going to cure them. Nothing's going to work. But all every man in this audience has a young man in their life that I'm sure they're a role model for, whether it's somebody they're related to or not. Teach them how not to rape women. Teach them how not to beat on women. Teach them how to treat women right. I
5: I I also tend to think, and this is coming from the perspective of a survivor. Until we and, and all of you amazing women that have stood up and said you're survivors, like. Hell yeah. Thank you for doing that, first of all. But but until you get help, and, and until those of you who did not say that you're a survivor, until you get help and come to a point that you can start having conversations with your children that's, that's when it's going to end is when we become empowered survivors and we educate our children and then that cycle just grows. That's how I believe we're going to stop it because I don't think any like billboard campaign or advertising campaign, none of that's going to get to the heart of it more than a survivor telling their child the good and the bad touches and how to treat people. So I, I think it starts again in this room and all of you amazing people taking a step to become advocates for yourself and for each other.
3: My name is Sue Ann Wren, and I would like for Crystal to share some of the services that are available for brave ones who come to Brave Step.
5: Thank you, Sue Ann. Um, So we
3: (laughs) provide individual
5: counseling, uh, all led by a very vetted uh, group of trauma therapists who are very trained in trauma, Um, group therapy, empowerment programs, peer support groups. Uh, Basically, we want to customize it to each individual because every single story Albeit there are commonalities, every single person is unique, and they need to be treated that way.
1: Uh, I want to follow up on something. Yeah, I think, uh, Deputy, you mentioned uh, that the the amount of time to process rape kits in Mecklenburg County has gone down, and uh, CMPD is investigating what went wrong or what could have been done better in, in Linda's specific case. Are there any other specific changes that will come out of what you learned from listening to this podcast and talking to uh, Sarah and how it was reported over the the last several months.
4: Well, and I think the other kind of thing that came out of it, just talking to Linda, um, just an opportunity to hear from someone who had experienced this personally and to be able to go back to our unit and develop additional training to have further conversations to say this is the way the words that you said were perceived by the victim or the survivor that experience to sexual assault, um, you know, just to make us better. I think as an organization, that's what we do, and that's what we should continue to do.
1: Because Lee in the audience said, what is CMPD doing to instill new programs to aid victims of traumatic crimes as well as how to educate officers to treat them appropriately?
4: So we have ongoing training. Um, the, The training that I talked about where you learned about how a brain processes trauma is something that I experienced again recently, and it's ongoing. It's not something that we can train our officers in the academy and and, and kind of check a box and be done. It has to be ongoing. Um, I shared with some others that, um, and I think Crystal and I were talking about it earlier, about the the secondary trauma that our police officers experience, and that's also a concern for us because then they may convey or transfer some of that trauma to victims. And so at CMPD, we have a police psychologist that our employees can talk to. And so recently we started in our crime against children unit and our cyber crimes unit that investigate child pornography. And so we asked those officers voluntarily to meet with our police psychologist to have a conversation about how the cases that they investigate and the things that they see as a part of their job affect them personally and last week we moved that conversation to our homicide detectives and our sexual assault detectives because we know that our officers who hear this type of information daily, it, it, impa- it impacts sure. them as well, and we want them to be well, to have great mental health so they can provide great service to our community.
1: And, and Crystal, I don't know whether you said this in the podcast or whether you said it the last time you were on our, our program, but uh, the victims of sexual, the survivors of sexual assault, uh, they suffer PTSD, mm-hmm. and there are many ways people deal with that, but it really never goes away, right?
5: No. I, I think that there are... If especially with good trauma care, you can you have to go in it. You have to go and face it. Um, but a good trauma therapist can help you get through it so you can learn coping skills to minimize the effect and the control it has. But, I mean, I, I was 10 years in therapy and, and will never, ever forget the experience that happened to me. And I think that af- applies to many of the survivors. They, they can get to a good place with it, but it doesn't go away.
1: Okay. Uh, where are we next? Over here?
4: Hi, my name is Lorelei Kitchick, and I just wanted to thank the lieutenant for sharing the the idea of training. It was obvious from, I said to my daughter, he's been trained. My questions are, who funded the training? Uh, How often do you get the training? Do you share the training with schools? Do you take the training,
1: in other words, to third graders? Um, Because you said, as you said, we're the jury pool. And the children are—we need to educate them. Um, how? Where did you get the money from? <laughs> yeah,
4: <laughs> is my real question because everybody wants to fix a problem, but we need funds to do that. Grants. Whatever. Yeah, thank
6: you. Uh, the, the biggest training we've had has come from our uh, Sexual Assault Kit Initiative grant. We got some money to do some department-wide training. Just basically, some—I'll uh, uh, give them a shameless plug. A company called Blue Line Training Group uh, created a four-hour training. A basic sexual assault response investigation training for all of our swarm patrol officers to attend, um, so that that helped out quite a bit. Uh, we we actually we are extremely extremely lucky uh, to have somebody uh, the the head sane nurse at Walmack Army Hospital. She's like a national expert in the neurobiology of trauma. She actually trains for free our our police academy and some of our uh, other like our domestic violence liaison officer program and sexual violence liaison professor program um as far as getting into schools, so yeah that that's uh that, that's a unique challenge with that i don't know as far as going in talking about sexual assaults if that's what you're talking about um that's something that uh, hasn't been broached yet i know we do have like the bullying programs the sexting programs and things of that nature that we get into schools with but uh to go in there to talk specifically about sexual assaults at that young age. Um, we, we haven't done that. We've went to some of the, the colleges, you know, the local colleges, and, of course, the, the young Army guys on, on Fort Bragg and, and, and had conversations with them. But, um, yeah, thank you. That's, that's a good comment. Thank you.
4: At CMPD, it's similar to in Fayetteville. There are great resources in our community. Safe Alliance is um, an organization in Charlotte that has advocates that come to the CMPD and help us do training. We've developed a sexual assault response team that involves advocates, law enforcement, the district attorney's office, medical professionals that We partner with them. They do training for us, not only for our detectives, but for our patrol officers to help officers in the field who encounter um, victims of trauma to know kind of what kind of questions to ask and how to work through that. Um, I know we've talked a lot about costs. We've talked about costs to the state, costs to the police departments, costs to the hospitals, but what about costs to the victims? If a young lady, young man, or any age, walks into a hospital right now and says, I've been raped, and they say, they want to have a rape kit run, are they going to incur any personal costs from the hospital at all? Is that something that we need to address? Is that something that people need to realize that they can walk in? Are they going to receive a bill, or are they going to be able to walk in and not have to worry about that cost?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, My understanding, and feel free anyone else to jump in, but the kit itself in the exam is something that you wouldn't be paying for. Um, But if you had something like a broken bone from your assault, that's not necessarily something that's going to be covered. My understanding is that there's specific um, aid that you could apply for, but whether you actually get it or not, that's You know, that's what it is. Um, But the exam and getting the kit done, I believe that's supposed to be free.
6: That's true. My understanding, I I believe there's actually a state law that covers that. There's money from the state that that covers that.
4: A victim compensation fund. Mm -hmm.
6: Is that
1: once the case is prosecuted and settled or is that immediate?
4: That's a good question.
1: (laughs) What's the answer? It's taken three years for living. Over here.
2: The answer, um, okay. it takes time because they have you have to do your, um, after you do the kit and you, you have to actually meet with a detective, um, that way they can start running a report and type up your notes and then your notes are sent to um, like victims compensation. They have to approve uh, what actually happened and notate that you were a victim and then they send
3: everything to the hospital. Okay. So that's how Thank it's done. Thank you.
1: I'm, I'm being told we have time for one more question. Go ahead.
3: Uh, several months ago, my name is Margaret. I live here in Charlotte. Uh, Rick De la Canal mentioned the Stanford study on rape. And I went back and found that online. And I think everyone who can handle this is from the Journal of Forensic Science, March of this year. It's an amazing study, and there's lots in there. You can read the summary, even if you can't handle all the statistics in the middle of it. But one of the statistics that's pretty overwhelming, and I asked a lot of my women friends, okay, so these guys studied rapists. They went and visited them in the prisons and interviewed them extensively. They Four major cities in the United States. They asked, well, how many rapes did you commit after? Well, what do you think the average number was? I, my friends said five, 10. 26. That's an average.
5: Do you have a question for the panel?
3: I think I'm just asking people to go back and read the study because there's a lot of other things in there that are important and relevant to North Carolina, to the attorney general's attempts to get money to get all the kits tested. So go back. Thank you and read I, the I, Journal of Forensic Science. I, I read Stanford. that. Fig-
1: I read that figure this afternoon. I didn't know it came from Stanford, but I read the 26 number. And yeah. are you familiar with that? Either of you? It,
3: it's um,
4: it's disturbing. It's alarming. I, th- I think the um, one of the best things that helps us identify those cases when there's multiple cases is DNA. So when victims get a sexual assault kit done and and the dna is then entered into the national database CODIS. it allows us to put those cases together right. and prosecute that person for the additional cases
1: i want to thank uh, katrina grau uh from cmpd for being with us tonight along with john summer who came all the way up here from fayetteville and has to drive all the way back tonight thank you so much for that um Crystal Emmerich uh, from uh, Bravestep, and, and I, I want to do a shout-out. Uh, this is unusual that I would do this because it's like tooting our own horn, but your work on this podcast has been, and, and your colleagues' work on this podcast, has been remarkable, and I think uh, as what Joe said at the very beginning, the number of people who have downloaded this and the international exposure that it's getting it tells me that you're telling a story that no one has ever heard before, and that is remarkable work. Congratulations.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you guys for being here, and thank you for listening. I really appreciate it.